This message by C.J. Mahaney was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. C.J. serves as a senior pastor for Sovereign Grace Church of Louisville. Please turn in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 8, where our attention this morning will be devoted to the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch, a passage and a message that your pastors, your pastors who deeply care about you and serve you so wisely and well thought this particular passage would be appropriate following the baptisms, and I am still trying to recover emotionally from the baptism. Baptism is always so moving and so meaningful to be able to witness and celebrate with those individuals is a gift to us all this morning. And your pastors thought that this passage would serve this very special occasion. One of my early memories of watching television at the beginning of the 1960s was an innovative show at that time about law enforcement titled The Naked City. It focused on the detectives of NYPD's 65th Precinct. It was filmed on location in New York City. And this show, along with the show Dragnet, were the earliest shows that created this genre for television that continues to this very day. The Naked City received several Emmy nominations and was critically acclaimed for its writing and acting. And I am reasonably certain this morning that my dear friend Mickey Conley, also joining us this morning, that Mickey and I are possibly the only two individuals in the room who remember the television show, The Naked City. But anyone who is familiar with the show remembers how each episode of The Naked City ended. Because each episode concluded with the unique voice of the narrator saying, there are eight million stories in the naked city. This has been one of them. Prior to Acts chapter 8, Luke, the author of Acts, has been repeatedly drawing the attention of the readers to the mass conversions that have taken place following the ascension of Jesus, the outpouring of the Spirit, and the proclamation of the gospel by the apostles and the early church. In Acts chapter 2, Luke informs the reader that 3,000 were added to the church. In Acts chapter 5, Luke writes, quote, more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. In Acts chapter 6, we read, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And in Acts chapter 8, at the outset of Acts chapter 8, a revival breaks out in a certain city in Samaria having a transforming effect on the entire city. But up until this point in Acts, Luke hasn't told a story about the conversion of one 
specific individual until now. There have been thousands of conversions in the book of Acts up to this point. But this morning, this story is about one of them. In our passage this morning, the scene abruptly shifts from a city-wide revival, Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 25, to a story of personal evangelism and the unexpected conversion of just one man. And if you haven't met this gentleman, I can assure you, you won't forget him. In the New Bible Commentary, Conrad Genf describes him in this way. A more exotic person could hardly be imagined. Not only from one of the most remote regions of the world, he was also an important official there and a eunuch as well. This passage, his story, is included in the book of Acts because it uniquely illustrates and foreshadows the spread of the gospel from the confines of Jerusalem to the ends of the earth as ethnic barriers continue to fall before the advancing and unstoppable gospel. And in this case, the barriers come down through personal evangelism and one man, one exotic man's conversion. This individual conversion is told in detail and it's preserved for us not only because of its importance in redemptive history but also its relevance to our modern lives. Acts chapter 8. I will begin reading in verse 26. Let each of us listen carefully with hearts filled with anticipation for God is eager by his spirit to draw near to us and reveal himself to us through the reading of his word. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south, toward the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, He was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. 
Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself in Azotus, (laughs) and as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. In the advance of the gospel across ethnic barriers to the end of the earth, the first individual conversion that Luke informs us of is a black African from ancient Ethiopia. The story is unique, and that's why Luke tells the reader and what a story Philip has to tell. Philip, humanly speaking, is most responsible for the unprecedented revival that is taking place in Samaria. And so, quite unexpectedly, in verse 26, he hears an angel say, to him, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So this most fascinating story begins with a most surprising angelic summons for Philip to leave an urban revival and go to a lonely location. Notice notice that Luke describes, Luke inserts, Luke includes, Luke describes for the reader that this location where Philip is being directed by this angel in verse 26, this is a desert place. The angel doesn't say that. Luke is informing us as the readers of this lonely, odd, secluded location. The angel instructs Philip to go south to the road that goes from Jerusalem to Gaza. Gaza is about 50 miles southwest of Jerusalem, and this would be the last settlement, the last stop for water before the desert road that leads to Egypt or eventually Africa. And I can't help but wonder if Philip was initially, well, initially perplexed by this angelic guidance because he is being directed to leave the scene of a city-wide revival where he has been vitally involved and go south to a location and road that hardly seem strategic. If I was Philip, I would be wondering, why, why leave now? Why so far south? 
Why this road? I mean, if I'm Philip, I would be reluctant to leave this revival where there is still plenty of gospel work to do in this city, including the instruction that would be necessary for the newly converted. And you want to notice that the angel gives him no specifics about the Ethiopian eunuch. The only specifics he receives relate to a certain road. And yet, impressively, we read in verse 27, and he rose and went. And in this little detail, we can perceive this man's heart and this man's humility. It it is obvious that Philip wasn't motivated by public ministry, public attention, public acclamation. Instead, Philip was committed to serving his Savior, however strange the assignment might appear. And then Luke introduces us to the Ethiopian eunuch in verses 27 and 28. And remember, the Ethiopia of this particular time, it was not modern Ethiopia where we, ha, where we have had the joy of planting a church, but this was a location south of Egypt in what we know today as the Sudan. And Luke draws our attention to this man's important role in his high social status. He's the chief financial officer for Candace. That's a dynastic name. It's not a personal name. It's the title for the queen of Ethiopia. And this man is also a God-fearer. And this is evident by his journeying all the way to Jerusalem on a religious pilgrimage in order to worship the God of the Jews. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, probably during one of the thrice yearly festivals. And the theological reason that Luke draws our attention to this man being a eunuch five times in this very passage is because a eunuch would be excluded from full membership as part of the people of God. So his participation at the temple in Jerusalem would be limited to the court of the Gentiles. This man was considered, along with all the Gentiles, to be an outsider. And even though he spent time in Jerusalem, doesn't appear he has heard the gospel, perhaps because the church has been scattered due to persecution following the martyrdom of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. However, this man has been significantly influenced by Judaism because this journey to Jerusalem would take him five months. And his sincerity and appetite for God and his word is evident because on his return home, he is reading the prophet Isaiah. And this would also indicate that he is wealthy because this scroll would have been expensive. It would have been difficult to obtain. It was normally only available at a synagogue. And in verse 29, Luke again reminds us of just who is orchestrating this encounter. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, when you think of a chariot, don't, don't think of Charlton Heston, don't think of Ben-Hur, don't think of a military chariot. This, this would be either an ox or a horse-drawn wagon. It's a vehicle for travel. It would have a covering of some kind. Yet, I think given the wealth of this man, this would most likely be a top-of-the-line chariot, a Mercedes of his particular day. So his ride was probably the envy of all those he passed on the road that day. Someone else would be driving his chariot, and given this man's position, there no doubt would be a whole entourage traveling with this man. The Spirit directs Philip to go join the chariot, and though this means Philip has to run, notice in verse 
30. It wouldn't be too difficult to catch up with his chariot. It's moving along at really just above the top speed of those who pass you in the mall as they walk for exercise. And as Philip catches up to this chariot, he hears this man reading the prophet Isaiah. If you're wondering, well, how does someone hear another person reading to himself? Historians inform us that reading aloud was the norm in the ancient world. Reading aloud even to oneself. So this was the ancient form of audible. And wouldn't our experience at a coffee shop or library be transformed if everyone read aloud? Here's what I'm thinking. At this moment when he hears this man reading Isaiah 53, I think it's no doubt becoming clear to Philip why he is no longer in Samaria. Philip takes the initiative. He asks a question. Do you understand what you are reading? And the Ethiopian humbly acknowledges his need for someone to interpret for him what he is reading. He responds, how can I? How can I unless someone guides me? So that is an impressive display of humility on behalf of, on the part of this Ethiopian. Because Philip was a stranger and he certainly wasn't his social or positional equal. Yet he immediately and happily invites Philip, come. Come and sit with me. Come and teach me. And the Lord has graciously provided this man with a reliable, interpretive guide. So picture the scene with me. The Ethiopian is holding the scroll of Isaiah unfolded. Philip has joined him, sitting next to him as this chariot bumps along its journey south. And in the providence of God, the Ethiopian was reading from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. And there simply could not be a better passage for understanding the gospel. In this passage, Isaiah is describing, and he is describing vividly and powerfully, an innocent, silent, suffering servant who was humiliated and slaughtered and unjustly executed. And the Ethiopian eunuch wants to know who this is. About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? The Ethiopian wants to know who the prophet is talking about and how this might relate to him. And then Philip opened his mouth in verse 35 and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. So Philip happily informs him that this prophecy points to and was fulfilled by Christ. And the apostles and the disciples had learned all this from the risen Christ himself. They had learned from the risen Christ that the interpretive key to the Old Testament is Jesus. So Philip was able to take him from Isaiah 53 to Jesus because this is what Jesus was busy doing with the apostles and the disciples during the 40 days from his resurrection to his ascension as we learn in Luke's gospel where we read, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That, that is, my friends, the best 
Bible study in the history of Bible studies. The Son of God himself taking disciples, in this case, the two forlorn disciples initially on the road to Emmaus following his death. He takes them through all that Moses and the prophets have written, things he informs them that are all about himself. So he has trained the apostles and the disciples that the defining center of the Old Testament is Jesus and that the Old Testament cannot be understood apart from this defining center. So he has provided them with this interpretive key. And this is exactly what Philip is doing with the Ethiopian eunuch. F.F. Bruce insightfully writes, how difficult it was to understand the prophecy before it was fulfilled. How easy once the fulfillment is known. So as they journey together, Philip happily explained text after text that revealed the good news about Jesus. And this would include not only the atonement for sin, his death secured, but his vindication of his substitutionary sacrifice on the cross through his resurrection and ascension. And by the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit, the Ethiopian realizes the prophetic scriptures are all fulfilled in Jesus. And it is apparent that the Ethiopian was genuinely converted because in verse 36 we read, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? So it would appear that Philip concluded his teaching with an appeal similar to Peter's on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, and said, repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Philip is obviously convinced of the genuineness of this man's response to the gospel since he baptizes him. And this, my friends, well, this would be a baptism like no other in the experience and the memory of the Ethiopian eunuch because in verse 39 we read, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord <laughs> carried Philip away. That, that would have gotten your attention this morning, would it not? On the final baptism Bill performed uh, for his grandson this morning, morning, if suddenly Bill did a Bilbo-like vanishing, wouldn't, wouldn't you be wondering and a bit perplexed? That, that's what took place. They come up out of the water, and Philip is no more. I'm sure that Ethiopian was puzzled momentarily, but Philip was now optional. He had met the risen and ascended Christ, and so he went on his way rejoicing, and Philip suddenly finds himself with yet another new assignment. Nothing can dampen the Ethiopian eunuch's joy, though. Nothing. This man, who previously, when he visited the temple in Jerusalem, could only gain entrance to the court of the Gentiles, now this man may enter the very presence of God through the new temple, through the one the temple pointed to, through 
the great high priest and his once for all sacrifice on the cross for the Ethiopian eunuch, this man now has peace with God and access to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. So as his chariot distances himself from Jerusalem, this man returns to Ethiopia accompanied by Christ himself. And as this chariot journeys south, the gospel, my friends, is on its way to Africa. Gospel is on its way to a new ethnic group. And this is a foretaste of the fulfillment of Jesus' command in Acts 1-8 to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. So, what, what are the implications? What, what are the implications of Philip's example of personal evangelism? And what are the implications of this man's conversion for, for each of us, for each of us personally, for Cornerstone Church of Knoxville? What are the implications? Well, I think this passage has implications for us in relation to the nations and our neighborhoods. The nations and our neighborhoods. First, the nations. In this story, another ethnicity is reached with the gospel. Another ethnic barrier falls before the advancing gospel. And oh, by the way, if you're a Christian, you should be able to trace your conversion to what's going down in this story. Because what's happening in this story is the gospel is breaking free from the confines of Jerusalem. The gospel has now reached the despised Samaritans. Now the gospel has reached the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's on his way back to Africa to proclaim the gospel. What's going down here? Well, what's going down here is the gospel is making progress, and that progress eventually arrives in your life with whoever shared the gospel with you. So we should be able to trace our conversion to what's happening here. The gospel is making its way to Gentiles like you and me. And this story reveals God's purpose for the advance of the gospel to every ethnicity through the church for the glory of his son. So in his excellent book titled From Every People and Nation, A Biblical Theology of Race, Author Daniel Hayes makes this point about this man's conversion when he writes, It was clearly a part of God's plan for the gospel to reach this black African in the most initial stages of the Christian evangelistic expansion. A Greek-speaking Semitic Jew led the black African to Christ in one of the first evangelistic encounters recorded in Christian history. Thus, setting the stage for the explosion of the gospel into the world that took place over the next 30 years and giving a foretaste of the mixed composition of the new people of God that will fill the kingdom of Christ. Oh, my friends, this is biblical history. And this biblical history, it is meant to inform our hearts. It is meant to inspire our hearts and our churches in reaching every ethnicity with the gospel. 
That is God's purpose. That is God's intention. God intends for the gospel to spread to all ethnicities throughout the world and to all ethnicities in Knoxville through his church for the glory of his son. And by, by God's grace, we, as part of Sovereign Grace Churches, we, we are doing, we are doing by God's grace our, our small part to take the gospel to the nations. If you aren't aware, we are presently involved serving more than 30 nations with the gospel. And, and if, you're, you're, if you're unfamiliar with Sovereign Grace Churches and the mission of Sovereign Grace Churches, I recommend signing up to receive Sovereign Grace Churches monthly missions update. Because pretty much each and every month when that update arrives in my inbox, pretty much each month, as I scroll down and read the stories of the advance of the gospel, as I study the pictures that are presented in and through this email, pretty much each and every month, tears fill my eyes as I behold all that is going on. And Good news for us as well. Today, one doesn't have to go to the nations in order to reach the nations because the nations have come to us. But one does need to be aware of those of a different ethnicity and alert to opportunities to interact with them, to serve them, to create a friendship with them in the hope of one day sharing the gospel with them. So this passage, it, it's meant to give us new eyes. It's meant to give us new eyes as we go from this place to perceive the opportunities that exist to reach different ethnicities with the gospel as a foretaste of the mixed composition of the new people of God that will fill the kingdom of Christ. Second, our neighborhoods. This passage has implication for our neighborhoods because the story also illustrates the importance of personal evangelism in the life of the church. And by the way, the example of personal evangelism has been a compelling distinctive of your senior pastor and this church from the inception of this church. God takes Philip from a city-wide revival to share the gospel with one person. And Luke has intentionally placed these two distinct examples of Philip's evangelistic out exploits in Acts chapter 8. So you've got the mass conversion and revival taking place in Samaria that precedes then this change in story to personal evangelism. And notice that Luke gives a similar amount of space to both and that's all for our instruction. But there are definitely some differences between the public proclamation of the gospel to a large gathering and communicating the gospel in personal conversation with an individual. So we, we need to ask ourselves, what, what can we learn from Philip? What can we learn from Philip about personal evangelism? Well, I think we can learn a lot. First, Philip models compassion. He models compassion for this man. If, if Philip hadn't cared for and about this complete stranger, he would not have responded to the Spirit's directive to approach this man. I, I find Philip's example 
Not only compelling, I find it convicting because I can easily miss an opportunity to interact with someone simply because I am preoccupied with my own life and my own schedule and I fail to notice others as I busily make my way through a given day. Other people become invisible to me. Philip approached this man because he genuinely cared about this man. So he follows the priority, the importance of caring for the lost in reaching out to the lost. Philip also models courage, the courage required to share the gospel with some. So given the ethnic difference and given the position of the Ethiopian approaching this chariot to engage this guy with the gospel, it required courage. It required boldness. Actually, evangelism always requires courage and boldness. And the temptation to fear when you have the opportunity to share the gospel is, listen carefully, normal. Normal. Professor Walter Hansen insightfully writes, Many words can be spoken in human discourse without the slightest risk or need for courage. But speaking this particular word, a Christ-centered word, always requires courage. Yes, it does. Sharing the gospel always requires courage because, well, for a number of reasons, because we live in a fallen world that is hostile to the gospel. And the message of the gospel is offensive to proud hearts. And we can fear the rejection of not only the gospel, but of ourselves as well. And that's why there is a certain pattern in Acts where the disciples, when threatened or persecuted because of the gospel, they pray to God for boldness and they experience the empowering work of the Spirit to proclaim the gospel. And the good news for us is that same prayer, that same experience of power is available to us when we are in need of courage in sharing the gospel in conversation. Peter also, uh, Philip rather, also models wisdom in personal evangelism. Notice that he entered into this conversation by asking a question. Do, do you understand what you are reading? So F Philip didn't begin the conversation informing the guy of all the supernatural stuff he experienced that brought him there. No. Instead, he began by asking a question. And the answer to this question will inform then Philip's response to the question. The, the answer to this question will give Philip a read on where this guy is at and how Philip should proceed. Listen, there is wisdom in asking questions. By asking questions, you can then begin a conversation with someone. You can get to know them. And initially, the question doesn't have to be theological in nature. Just a question that communicates your care. Just a question that expresses your interest. Just a question about who it is you are desiring a conversation with. Asking them a question or two or three about their life and about their background. Learning all you can about them. It's, it's a question that can eventually lead to a conversation about the gospel. And by asking 
questions, wisely asking questions, and then listening careful, carefully to the answers to those questions, you can sow strategic seed, strategic seed from God's Word into the conversation. There's a good book that has been written about this subject titled Questioning Evangelism, Engaging People's Hearts the Way Jesus Did by Randy Newman. I recommend this book. But finally, and most importantly, Philip models proclaiming the same gospel message. He's proclaiming the same message, whether it's mass evangelism in Samaria or personal evangelism with the Ethiopian eunuch. And and Luke is making this point clearly and explicitly and repeatedly for our instruction and encouragement, actually, in both of these stories that appear in Acts 8. Luke makes clear that the gospel, the gospel is the most important component of evangelism. Though he references in the mass evangelism in Samaria, that signs and miracles accompanied Philip's ministry, he makes clear that it was the gospel that was the most important component of evangelism, that those in Samaria were saved because they heard and responded to the gospel, not because they observed signs and miracles. And he makes this point in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 12, in verse 14, in verse 25, and it is the good news about Jesus in verse 35 that resulted in the conversion of the Ethiopian. So so to both audiences, despite their ethnic, social, and religious differences, it was the same message. It was the same message of the good news of Jesus Christ that was proclaimed because there is only one gospel. And this should encourage us, oh, this should encourage us in our evangelism, not not only because most of us don't have access to signs and miracles, but more importantly, because the gospel is the power of God resulting in the greatest miracle possible, someone's salvation. And this, this frees us, it frees me from any pressure to convert someone or to convince someone when I evangelize because I am incapable, humanly incapable of converting anyone or convincing anyone. But this I can do. I can share the gospel with someone. And that gospel, accompanied by the power of the Holy Spirit, can result in the miracle of the new birth. And perhaps my conversion experience will will, will serve you and help you in in this regard. In my teenage years, I was led into, although ultimately I'm responsible for, the drug culture by numerous older friends. One of those older friends moved away and moved to Florida from the Washington, D.C. area where he had previously lived and where I continued to live. Unbeknownst to me, after a period of time, separated, he heard the gospel and was converted. And when he was converted, one of his first commitments was return to where he once lived to his friends and share the gospel with each and every one of them. He wisely didn't tell us he had been converted. That would have been unwise. We we would have separated ourselves from him. I'm sure I would have distanced myself from him. He did not do that. He just asked to get with me. 
And that night, a night I will never forget, sitting in a room where I assumed we would just begin partying again, I took out some hash that I had recently purchased, and I began to smoke the hash. I offered some to Bob. I was momentarily perplexed that he declined, but I wasn't deterred. I continued to smoke, and I immediately got high. Bob had been a Christian about two, three weeks, so Bob's no theologian. But Bob, this is not somebody with a degree in apologetics sitting across from me. Uh, this, this, is, this, is, this is not someone who's been theologically trained. All Bob knew to do was to share his conversion experience with me. All Bob knew to do was to share the gospel with me. And this would be the first time I had ever heard the gospel. Bob, at one point, said to me, Quoting 1 Corinthians 15, although I'm not even sure he referenced the passage, but from 1 Corinthians 15, he said, Christ died for your sins, CJ. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit acted upon this drugged head and heart and made my heart alive together with Christ. In that moment, through his proclamation of the gospel, I beheld the glory of the risen Christ of the cross. I turned from my sin. I trusted in the Savior for the forgiveness of my sin. And from that moment, I began to treasure him above all. My friends, Bob didn't know much, but he knew enough. And he knew enough to share the gospel with his friend he cared about. And it was that gospel that transformed my life. And John Stott makes this point about evangelism when he writes, effective evangelism becomes possible only when the church recovers both the biblical gospel and a joyful confidence in its truth and its relevance and its power. Oh, my friends, May, may, we, may, we, may we recover both. May we recover both the biblical gospel and a joyful confidence. If you need to recover it, may we recover both. But what is most important about this story is not what we learn about Philip, but what we learn about God. That's what's most important in this story. Because this story... This story reveals God himself as the great evangelist. And this story is about his gracious, irresistible determination to seek and save the lost. So you notice, notice that in this story, it's God himself who's orchestrating all these circumstances. Verse 26, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go. Verse 29, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Verse 36, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. This, this would have been the last body of water before entering the desert on the way to Egypt, so it's just another illustration in this story of God's attention to every detail of this evangelistic encounter. It is God himself who has initiated all of this. It is God himself who has orchestrated all of this. And 
in this story. It is God himself who prepares the heart of the Ethiopian for Philip's gospel presentation. Verse 27, he, the Ethiopian, had come to Jerusalem to worship. So remember, that is at the very time, the very time when the gospel was advancing from the confines of Jerusalem. And in verse 32, now the passage of scripture that he was reading was Isaiah 53, 7 and 8. So Philip discovered that the heart of the Ethiopian was prepared by God long before Philip arrived on the scene. And my friends, good news for us. If first, if you are a Christian, you must remember, oh, you must remember and never forget that the circumstances of your conversion were orchestrated by God himself. And you must remember and never forget that it was your heart that was prepared by God as well. And never forget, never forget the Philip God led to you to share the gospel with you. Oh, never forget. This should be a sweet reminder to us to make our way back through the chain of individuals who served us and cared for us and eventually shared the gospel with us so that we might say in a fresh way, thank you so very much. And even though we shouldn't expect that the Spirit will direct us like Philip, <laughs> So I don't want you leaving here thinking that the Spirit is going to give you this kind of specific directions. You know, go, go to the Starbucks that is on Gay Street just off the campus, and there you will find a man who is drinking a grande Americana. That, that, that's, that's not... Luke has not placed this here in, in order to create those kind of expectations, even though at times God does give us subjective guidance, that, but that's not the norm. But that, that doesn't mean that God isn't leading us. Oh my, my, he is still very much leading us, but normally by less dramatic and obvious means. But he's no, he's no less active and present. And that's what this story is meant to convey to us. D divinely arranged interactions, they, they come in different forms, but they are all divinely arranged. And yes, yes, it would be much easier if every non-Christian we met happened to be reading 53, Isaiah 53. It, it, would be, it would be easier if whoever you met in the coffee shop this week and asked, what are you reading? Gospel of John, <laughs> chapter 3. You know what he's talking about here? <laughs> Do you know what Jesus meant when he said, you must be born again? That, that's probably not going to be your experience this week, and this isn't supposed to create that expectation as you venture out. But listen, oh my, we should venture out each day certain of this. God is orchestrating circumstances. God is preparing hearts. And if we are alert, God is providing us with opportunities to reach out to the law. So the implication is we have to ask ourselves from this particular passage, do I enter into my day aware that God is orchestrating circumstances and preparing hearts each day? And am I alert to these opportunities to interact with non-Christians? Listen, don't you think... Don't you think that if you prayed today, 
Lord, this week, arrange circumstances. Prepare hearts. Lead me to people who are lost. Bring them into my life so that eventually I can share the gospel with them. Don't you think that the Lord would be pleased to answer that prayer? I do. In fact, let, let's just pray that prayer right now. I mean, just, just ponder this for a second. If, having gathered, we are then the church scattered, contemplate with me the potential opportunities that exist this week to begin interacting with non-Christians, starting conversations with them that might one day end up with you sitting out there observing someone standing there and being baptized in there. All because you reached out to them and began a conversation because you care that ultimately resulted in you being able to share the gospel. Oh Lord, as we scatter from here, we do ask you, prepare hearts, lead individuals to us, orchestrate circumstances this very week so that we might have providential appointments and interactions with the lost. And listen, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. Normally, effective personal evangelism takes place normally over a lengthy period of time. It involves a number of people. It involves countless ordinary interactions that don't appear significant or life-changing in the moment, but each of them contributes ultimately in some small way to someone hearing the gospel and being transformed by the gospel. And listen as we close, listen to the way Bruce Milne makes this important point from this story in Acts 8 from his commentary. Mr. Milne writes, this whole account is a beautiful demonstration of the sovereignty of God in human redemption. The remarkable ordering of circumstances. In this sense, Philip was only the final link in a chain of circumstance which brought this searching African to the end of his search for salvation and to experience its joy. I love this. One sometimes muses that when heaven is entered, everyone who arrives there will be found at some point encircled by a significant group of praising people comprising all those who contributed in any way to that individual's salvation. All those who prayed for them all those who cared for them, all those who reflected Christ to them, all those who helped them to believe, all those who taught them some aspect of the gospel, all those who witnessed to them, all those who preached the good news to them, 
All those whose sacrifices and service made possible the ministries which at particular moments influenced them toward Christ from their earliest days till their final moment of commitment. Every conversion, as we commonly affirm, is a miracle of grace. But it is also a miracle of divine orchestration. And human complementariness and community. It is, a huge concur- it is a huge encouragement to all of us, no matter how untutored or, as we may feel, ungifted, to, like Philip, make ourselves available day by day to God, the Holy Spirit, so that we may, in ways very often entirely unknown to ourselves, become a link in a chain of redemption. Heaven will be, among many other things, a place of wonderful surprises. Acts 8, this story, it is meant to be a huge encouragement to us as we embark on this sweet adventure of personal evangelism. Just think, this very week, you could be that Philip to someone this very week. So let's go into this week as we scatter from here. Confident. Confident in God. Confident in God, the great evangelist, who is at work orchestrating circumstances, who is at work preparing hearts. And let us go into this week alive and alert to the opportunities that he provides for us to reach out to non-Christians. And as we play our small part in personal evangelism, who knows, my friends, who knows what surprises await us this very week and one day in heaven. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for this church. Thank you for the example of this church and the heart that is so evident in this church to care for the lost, serve the lost, and most importantly, reach out to the lost with the gospel that has been a part of the history of this church from the inception of this church. And I pray there would be just a fresh motivation and encouragement from this passage as we all scatter from here and make our way into our various schedules this week. Lord, may we be aware that you are at work orchestrating circumstances and preparing hearts, and may we be alert to those opportunities you give us and the surprises that await us this week and one day that await us in heaven all because of and for the glory of your Son and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.